to the podcast where together, every Monday, we explore hospitality in its very broader sense, from culture and cooking, cocktails and coffee, nutrition and farming, politics and animal welfare, organic and sustainability, family and business, entrepreneurship, and much, much more. Come and learn with me, Mark Cribb, about where our food and our drink comes from and the businesses and more importantly the human beings that thrive on where we decide to spend our time and our money. Sign up to our weekly newsletter at humansofhospitality.co.uk and hit subscribe on your podcast player of choice. Welcome to the podcast and just a little intro this week because this episode is long enough on its own and it's the school holidays so I'm off to St Ives in Cornwall for a few days with the family and the dog so I will get a move on for all of our sakes. This week's guest is Nicholas Dickinson and if you don't know his name you will certainly know some of the places that Nicholas has worked and some of the businesses that he has developed. Nicholas, without a doubt, is a bona fide human of hospitality. It has been his life's work. From cutting his teeth at the Chute and Glen, working for the likes of Robin Hudson, to becoming the MD at Le Manoir and being Raymond Blanc's right-hand man, whilst working in partnership with Richard Branson and the Virgin Group. And having learned from some of the most inspirational leaders in our sector, it was time to go it alone when Nicholas co-founded a luxury family hotels. Along with a few others at the time, they created a new genre of hotels that many have replicated since. I'll let Nicholas tell the story of how the purchase of a hotel in Liverpool led to the need to start considering a sale and how Von Essen's offer was just too good to turn down. Now Nicholas has found his happy place once again on the cold face of hospitality with just one beautiful country house, Congham Hall. Nicholas has some strong views around the challenges of the government's approach to COVID in the rural hotel space and how ridiculous the implementation of some of these rules are. But overall, he's busy, still in love with hospitality, tells the story of his adventures very well, and still has ambitions to continue to develop and add rooms to what will be his last hotel. Nicholas was warm and generous with his time and has been good enough to introduce me to some great future guests too. I hope you all enjoy learning and hearing firsthand about his interesting career that once again demonstrates just how much fun and how much can be achieved in a life of hospitality. Remember, if you enjoy the chat, please take the time to head over to your podcast player of choice and hit five stars and subscribe. It really helps me attract the very best guests if I can show them that other people are enjoying the conversations and plenty of people are listening. Okay, thank you so much and enjoy this week's show. Nicholas Dickinson from Congham Hall, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Unfortunately, we're not face-to-face, Nicholas, but for people listening, can you just explain where in the world are you, please? Oh, thank you very much, Mark. Yes, I'm actually sitting at home uh, with the rain pouring outside my office window um, in just outside Cambridge. Ah, so how far are you from the, uh, from the hotel then? Uh, about just over an hour. Uh, okay. I wanted to move up to Norfolk, but my wife forbid me from doing that because she said if I did, I'd never get home. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. And uh, in Bournemouth, where I am on the south coast, it's also a very dark and damp winter's day. So, uh, yeah, 
Shocking. Right, you have had quite the uh, incredible hospitality adventure over the last 30 or so years, so I'm really excited to chat to you. You've, you've been at the iconic kind of places like Chewton Glen and Le Manoir. You've set up your own hotel groups, and uh, and you've even been in Portugal for a while, so it's going to be quite a, a diverse conversation, and it's tricky to know where to start. But I think having had Robin and, and Ollie from The Pig on recently, I'm going to start there, if that's okay. So your, your sort of first role, uh, I think it was 1992, trainee manager, you ended up at the Chewton Glen, a few years with David Brockett, and then a few years with Robin Hudson. Clearly, something happened in that time period that set you on this sort of uh, destination for a career in hospitality. Can you just talk a little bit about what it was at the Chewton Glen that, that sort of got you hooked on the sector, and, and maybe the differences between uh, Robin and David from a management style perspective? Uh, you flatter me, uh, Mark, by saying 1992. It's actually 10 years earlier. It was 19... oh. <laughs> <laughs> 1982. I wish it was 1992. Um, um, yeah, it actually goes back uh, to um, I was um, uh, just left school in 1981. Uh, I had um, not done very well at my A-levels and uh, careers people uh, had said to me during the A-level time that uh, uh, I'd always wanted to uh, have my own hotel and, and sort of silly sort of way and they'd said that you know hospitality and hotel keeping was what people did what they failed when they failed at what they really wanted to do so because I didn't very well do very well in my A-levels and didn't get to the university to read civil engineering which is what I was planning to do I decided okay I failed at what I really want to do I'm going to work in a hotel and at that point I had to try and work out well what was this sort of hotel experience that I wanted to offer when I was doing it for myself and I didn't know Chewton Glen but I flicked through all the hotel guides and Chewton Glen stuck out as being one of the preeminent uh, privately owned country house hotels of its day uh, and I rang up Martin Scan and said hello Martin I've just left rugby school and I'd like to have my own hotel one day and he said oh really I went to Halebury would you like to come and have lunch and uh, that's the one and only time I've waved my old school tie but I went and had lunch with Martin uh, my dad came with me and um at the end of that lunch, uh, I was offered the position of trainee manager. Uh, Tune Glen hadn't had a trainee manager before. I was its first trainee manager. And uh, I started in 1982 um, as a hall porter and uh, did three months as a hall porter. Then I did 18 months in the kitchen. Um, I worked in all the sections in the kitchen um, and uh, basically went through the hotel um, departments. And as you say, that was under the um, uh, watch of David Brockett, who was your classic old school um, general manager. I always remember David used to keep a fountain pen in his pocket and sign all his letters beautifully in his fountain pen. And I was given the perfect grounding of everything that one could expect and ask for in a country house hotel setting under the sort of traditional hotel keeping. Um, I left Tuton Glen to go to what was then Oxford Poly, to uh, complete my uh, HCIMA Part B qualification. I suddenly realised I did have a bit of a brain and I should better get a few qualifications under my belt. And during that time, Robin uh, uh, arrived at Tuton Glen whilst I was away. And Martin rang me up when I was after I'd finished my year at Oxford and said, we'd like you to come back. And I said, no, 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 I've done my stint. Thank you very much, Martin. I'm going to climb the ladder. But he said, no, 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 it's, things are going to be different. Come back. 
And I'm so glad I did because I went back and worked with Robin uh, for three years as I had three management positions, assistant manager, reception manager, sales manager. Robin sort of fast-tracked me up the up the ladder. And of course, that was first-hand experience of how to um, turn a traditional country house hotel on its head and do it completely differently, which is what Robin is still doing to this day with well, formerly Hotel Devan and then The Pig. Um, so I got this same beautiful hotel with two completely different um, spins on it, um, which was mind-blowing um, and a complete eye-opener for me um, as to how you could um, deliver an experience in the same experience, basically, in two fundamentally different ways. Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? Like you say, to see exactly the same building exactly the same location but with, with such a different uh, approach what what was it i suppose why in the first instance why was there a change was that sort of consumer driven did it need to change and then and then what exactly was so different that's a really interesting question and um you have to sort of try and get into the head of martin scan really to answer that question um martin was a um far-sighted chap when he started shooting glenn in 19 19- 66, 65. Um, uh, But I think he um, had come to realise that it had gone a long way down a road and it needed to slightly reinvent itself um, in terms of uh, how it put its proposition to the marketplace without revolutionising itself. Um, It was sort of had been doing the same thing, you know, the, the very, very traditional ways of delivering service for 20 plus years. And I think he probably thought that just needs to evolve. Uh, and then he was lucky enough to find Robin as someone who could help him evolve it. Mm. So what sort of changes were made there? What was what was different? It's just subtle. It, it, less reliance on... Um, the formality, bowing and scraping, <laughs> more on the, um, you know, the, 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 the true, um, uh, the, the, the true essence of what giving people a good time is all about, but without, you know, losing the five-star service. Um, and also I think, um, recognizing even back then in the eighties that, um, the you needed to look after staff more than expect them to work you know endless shifts um uh, that, that you had to sort of give understand what what they were what, what was in it for them as much as what they were giving for you um yeah that's interesting because that, that's quite a long time it feels like that's been quite a long journey because you know I, still probably we have a reputation for excessive hours but i think there's probably been more change in the last four or five years than maybe the 10 or 15 before that certainly in the kitchens would, would that be fair or would you say actually it's a bit of a myth and it's been changing for a long time i think it's um i think it has been changing for a long time i think it's like anything really it's just continually needs to evolve uh don't get me wrong uh there are a lot of people in hospitality who shouldn't be in hospitality because by its nature it is a lifestyle it's not it's not it doesn't make sense at purely as a day job. Uh, it's a 24-7 game. Uh, if you don't like working on a Saturday night because all your mates are out partying, then don't come into hospitality. Go and get a job in a shop. Um, so the, 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 there is an inherent um, 
need for people working in hospitality to 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 actually enjoy enjoy that and to for it to be an important part of their life rather than just a job uh, if it's not if it's not your vocation don't do it and there's a lot of people for whom uh, that's the case um, and those but those that do love it um, you know do still need to have uh, uh, that often totted out phrase work-life balance you know um, I feel very lucky myself I I I've say to lots of people, I've never done a hard day's work in my life. Um, I work very hard at easy work. Uh, I'd actually, which makes it quite hard for me to have a work-life balance because I, I, the lines blur between when I'm at work and when I'm not because work is just fun, and and therefore you're addicted to it and you do it probably too much. Um, yeah. And that's, you know, I think that's that you need a bit of that if you're going to succeed in this game, and therefore you don't get too fussed about the long hours because it's long hours of something that's just great fun yeah and every time you go out for dinner or or, or have any piece of food delivered to your house or whatever i suppose it's all it's all research you're constantly absorbing aren't you so you can never never quite switch off the same way as other people do 100 percent. yeah yeah so i i read that you said you knew you wanted to be a hotelier from the age of four that 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 feels (laughs) impossible is that true (laughs) Uh, it might not be four um so yeah, the, the 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 careers teacher thing was is true that I I said back at school to careers people I wanted to have my own hotel. That's what I wanted to do. Um, it started because um, we went to as a family to the Malta Hilton in Valletta uh, three years in a row. When I think I was either four, five, and six, or might be five, six, and seven, something like that. Um, and uh, that was my first experience of. Um, going on the plane, first experience going to a country outside England. Um, and to do it three years in a row, we, me and my two sisters, we're very close in age. We were sort of cosseted by this hotel and all the staff and we were treated by the time we got there for the third time as almost like long lost relatives who'd come back to visit. Uh, and I do remember, and it probably was on the last visit, sort of going around and asking the restaurant manager, can I see your wine cellar? And can someone show me around the kitchen? And, and, and I was just fascinated by the, um, the, 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 the community that made up uh, the, the staff at the Malta Hilton. And that stuck with me. And I never wanted to do anything else. I never had aspirations as a young lad to be a, an engine driver or a train driver or a pilot or anything, you know, fireman or what young boys tend to want to be. I just wanted to have my own hotel. And that was all because I wanted, I liked what I'd experienced at the Malta Hilton. Never went away. Wow. Amazing. Okay. And you were very honest with that in your job application to say, I want to come and work at the Chute and Glen because I want my own hotel. Was that the same when you went to Le Manoir? Did you let Raymond know that fundamentally you wanted to set your own up or how did that come about? So, okay. By that stage, um, I made a bit of a, my, my name for myself at Chute and Glen. They sort of liked what I'd done for them. I'd been there for, you know, eight years on two stints and it was, it was actually Robin that, that got me the job at the Manoir. But again, I timing was perfect um uh raymond had moved um what was then Le Cat saison from his uh little shop front in summertown in oxford out to great milton manor uh, five years previously uh which he'd run with his um then wife jenny uh and for the first five years and then he and jenny split up and they'd run that business with Raymond sort of running the kitchen and Jenny running everything else. And Raymond suddenly thought, oh, my God, I need someone to do what 
Jenny did. And I was lucky enough. Not, not be his wife, luckily. <laughs> well, to, well, sometimes I felt like I wasn't yeah. my wife. better not go there. But I was lucky enough to sort of step into the shoes that Jenny vacated um, at the age of 26. Um, I joined the memoir as hotel manager um, and um, spent five amazing and um, roller coaster years um, trying to help Raymond deliver uh, his breed of um, hospitality and and to, to make the most of what this creative genius because that is what that's what he is um, make commercial sense you know the, you, you had this endless fount of bonkers ideas um, some of which were useless some of which were pure genius all of which he was adamant needed to be um, enacted um, and try and sort of carve a way forward for that business um, to, 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 to deliver this man's vision it was it was it was an emotional roller coaster. Yeah, I bet. I reckon I could probably spend an hour just just quizzing you on that, but we will run out of time. But just in essence, what is it about Raymond? Because because he's clearly known for his sort of uh, his palate, I suppose, and he's amazing with food. But you know, I was at Le Manoir a few weeks ago, and what he's created there, you know, particularly with the grounds and the gardens, and you know, it, it is absolutely stunning. It sets the bar so high, I think, from that sort of seed to plate thing. So what, yeah, what, what was his drive and his obsession? What did you learn about Raymond during that time with him that, that sort of demonstrates, I suppose, why he's created what he has created? Raymond developed my palate. Uh, he has the most amazing ability uh, to detect and work with flavor and simple flavors so he would he would just take something really really simple and uh, a bowl of water and he'd just add a touch of i don't know carrot to that water and then he'd say sip this and you just got this this a massive flavor of carrot let's say i i, I can't remember can't particularly whether everybody did it with carrot and water but i, I remember lots of things where he i just go wow and th- and then he'd explain to you which bit of your tongue was tasting that and and then he'd do something else and he'd put some pepper in it or something and it would taste horrible and then he'd explain why that bit was reacting with that bit um so that you could and I can't, this is the trouble. I, I, if I put something in my mouth, I know whether it tastes good or bad. I know whether it's right. And I know, also know what perhaps you need to add to it or what it's missing to make it right. Um, but he, I know that because Raymond's taught me and he's educated my palate. He knew that instinctively. He just put something in his mouth. He just instinctively know why it wasn't right. Um, that's, that's, that's the that's the creative genius that he is. And then using, and then he used that ability, that, that talent that he's got to come up with just, you know, weird and wonderful um, uh, inventions. You know, I, I, I genuinely saw him, it's very difficult with food and particularly with the fact that, you know, we've only got a limited range of basic ingredients to be original and you know if we go back to the 80s just treading background everyone tried to be original by doing stupid things with nouvelle cuisine and putting um, kiwi fruit with turbot or something and it tastes revolting but everyone said no one's done that before you know that's because it tastes revolting um but you know raymond but if you're taking the basic ingredients of fish and meat and stuff and uh, and he would just do amazing things with them that were original they were just and and they worked and they were it was just genius and that and 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 that was always what 
we had to try and keep as the heart of what the manoir was all about. Um, it was, yes, it was this very special place that increasingly has become ever more grand and ever more luxurious and got lots more bells and whistles on it. But at its heart is this little Frenchman's genius um, that um, just is able to do amazing things in a simple way with simple ingredients. Yeah, amazing. And and did you have a uh, reasonable sort of free reign? Because you, you worked up from GM to MD, I guess. So presumably that was really good for your sort of career trajectory. Were you were you getting the opportunity there to sort of, I don't know, to put your own sort of style and your own sort of spin on things working in partnership with, with Raymond? Uh, I was very clear that it was not my business it was his uh, in fact it wasn't his business um uh, that, but 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 anyone who thinks that it's not all about him makes a fundamental mistake funnily enough it was his business when i first started there but then he got into partnership with um, virgin um and so that 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 and they virgin obviously then subsequently sold out to um, orient express that then became belmond um but um yeah my um, I saw my job exclusively as protecting what Raymond wanted to deliver, understanding from Raymond what it was that he wanted to deliver, trying to make commercial sense of that, and then delivering it. Uh, and uh, once I became a board member, um, making sure his partner, um, Richard Branson, effectively, um, remained on board with that as a principle and didn't take it down um, a route that was maybe appropriate for Virgin, but not appropriate for Raymond Blanc. Mm. And, and is that, that's quite an interesting statement. Is that route, you know, the, the commercial aspect? Because I would imagine if you're Raymond, then that obsession with with food and quality and, and the number of chefs that you need in the kitchen to create that sort of thing could be quite sort of uh not necessarily conflicting but but you you know c- clearly the reality is in the commercial world that it also needs to be profitable is is it was that the line you were walking between you know sort of perfection in Raymond's eyes and and needing to generate cash in in Richard's eyes or um yeah i don't think um Richard was pushing so much for sort of needing to generate cash but they that you know the that there was an ulterior motive to the to the Virgin involvement, which was being able to make use of Raymond on uh, Raymond's abilities, particularly in the airline and and developing the cuisine in the airline, and that was fine as long as you know as long as the Virgin didn't think that they could um, have great ideas as to how the manoir might like to be pushed. They never did. I mean, I, they I was lucky enough that they trusted that I would take responsibility for ensuring the manoir was commercially successful uh, in the way that was right for Raymond. I mean, an example of making it commercially successful, you've just taken me back, is um, the cookery school. That actually started um, as an idea that I had to fill the bedrooms in the winter. So the cookery school uh, started out with, um, we had 10 bedrooms, we had 20 bedrooms at the Manmore at that stage. And we knew we could fill about 10 of them regularly during the winter, but we struggled to fill 20 of them. And uh, I got fed up of sort of trying to persuade, you know, little meetings coming and visiting the manoir it wasn't really what the manoir was all about you know manoir was all about food not just hosting a business meeting because some company was prepared to pay you a load of money and and sit in a meeting room that wasn't really equipped for the purpose because it was more of a private dining room so i thought well hang on a second let's focus on the food bit and uh, invite um uh, uh, i think we started with five um people to come and stay at the manoir monday tuesday wednesday thursday and 
do some cookery lessons in the kitchen. Um, they're paying for the bedrooms that would otherwise sit empty. And um, we're focusing on what's true to Raymond, which is the, was the food. Um, and that little idea succeeded in filling the bedrooms. I think we ran it for two or three years like that before the whole idea got taken to a whole another level. And the cookery school that's now at the Manoir was created as a sort of almost separate business doing its own thing in its own different right. Um, but I think that's what I'm trying to say in terms of focusing on what was right for Raymond, um, it wouldn't have been right for me to push to say, you know, we need to be taking more business meetings in the winter to fill these rooms. It, but it was totally right to say, why don't we get people come and stay in these rooms and learn how to cook at the same time? Yeah, amazing. Okay, so it looks like um, the sort of place that would be quite easy to get stuck for, for quite a long time um, because it's it's just, you know, I, I suppose very beautiful. Chatting to, to Gary Jones a few weeks ago, you know, he, he's been there a long time and actually been back for a, a second stint. Um, what was the trigger that made you decide to hand in your notice? Because I, I don't think you had something else that you were going to go straight into. It was a six-month notice period. What, what made you do that? Well, I had tried to leave twice. I originally said to Roman, I'd do three years. Um, and after three years, I said, uh, it was time for me to go and he persuaded me to stay on and do another two. Uh, to be honest, after five years, I think I definitely needed to go. I've argued, if you look back, uh, no one has done, uh, with one exception, more than five years as GM or whatever of the memoir since I did the first stint. Um, and most people have managed to do five years if you didn't get off first base uh, with the exception of Philip Newman Hall uh, Philip managed to do two stints but of course he had to have a big gap in between those two stints and his last stint was six years uh, I always take my hat off to Philip he he's the only person who managed more than five because Raymond he rings you out and five years really is uh, in terms of being his his right hand man and from a business perspective it's it's I think it's I would argue you've got to be superhuman to do more than that so I needed to go um and he eventually accepted that I he was going to let me go um as you say I I gave him six months notice um and um I was again in the right place at the right time um I had um met Nigel Chapman um many years earlier when he had just started Woolly Grange um and we'd kept in touch and I had decided now was the time for me to have my own business. And I was looking at little hotels dotted around the country with what I could afford by shaking piggy and getting all the monies together. And one of the hotels I looked at was uh, a little hotel outside uh, Cheltenham. And unbeknown to me, the people who were selling that hotel knew Nigel very well um, and happened to mention to him that this chap from the memoir had been around to have a look around and they were quite optimistic that he might buy it so that prompted Nigel unbeknown to me to get in touch with me and say come on we need to have a chat Nigel's a very very unusual character I'm probably unusual but Nigel Nigel is very unusual and Nigel and I to cut a long story short formed a business relationship that we were like chalk and cheese but worked brilliantly he's an accountant by background um he had having done Woolly Grange as it retired it intended to be a retirement project for himself with his, his brother running it, had through the first recession in, in Gulf War in the early 90s, had to incorporate that business and get some outside money in, which he did through the business expansion scheme. And that business expansion scheme, as was, was coming to an end. It was going to be finished in December 1993. And he said to me, we can raise a bit of money under the business expansion scheme. And with that, we can develop a group of family 
hotels like in in the mold of Woolly Grange. And I had a my son had been born in July 1993, so this resonated with me perfectly. Coming back to having something that is um, it's got a USP. Um, wanted to stay in the sort of country house hotels sort of sector, but. Here, here, Nigel had tested the uh, market with a country house hotel that not only welcomed children, but basically had oodles of facilities for children, creches and all of this sort of stuff. And here was my opportunity to develop, um, turn that single hotel into a business. Anyway, we um, came out with a grand prospectus to raise. I think it was four and a half million pounds, um, uh, which was we launched in October 1993. Bearing in mind, we had until the 31st of December to, to get this money in. And I spent two and a half months ringing anyone and everyone I knew, including obviously a few ma- former Manoir guests, um, including the odd celebrity who'd, um, a few of whom actually had been cookery school um, uh, attendees at the Manoir and uh, anyone I thought had a bit of money, I sort of tapped them up. And um, I sat in an office on Christmas Day taking telephone calls for anyone who wanted to send us money. Um, And on the 31st of December uh, 1993, we'd raised the grand total of, I think, about (laughs) £230,000. And uh, we had a chap called David Newling Ward um, as our uh, brought on board as our non-executive chairman. Um, he got quite a good pedigree going back and he'd obviously brought in quite a few of his contacts. So they put a bit of money in. Um, and um, I think, I mean, you're talking about people putting between a thousand and five thousand pounds in each. I think we had a couple of investments of about 40,000, but they were, it was really loose change for these people. And David said to us, oh, that's been a bit of a waste of time. Let's give it all back. And I went, you've got to be joking. I'm out of a job next week. I'm going to spend it. We're going to buy a hotel. So I spent six months having, I left the memoir in early January 1994, and I spent six months trawling around the country trying to find um, a suitable hotel that we could turn into a, a sort of a replica of Willie Grange. Um, and yeah, there was nothing, there was nothing, everything was either too much or not appropriate or not suitable. And eventually we stumbled across the old bell in Malmesbury, um, which was being sold by um Clipper, uh, a chap called Robert Breer. Um, some people will remember Robert Breer. He was a really larger-than-life, avuncular character. And we had this meeting with Robert Breer, which I'll remember to my dying day. It was in Claridge's. Uh, Nigel, David, and I sat down opposite Robert, and Robert said, so are you going to buy this hotel office? And we said, well, we'd like to. And he said, right, I'm going to order a couple of bottles of Krug. He said, if we do the deal, I'll pay for the Krug. If not, you have to pay for the Krug. <laughs> uh, and we cracked open this Krug champagne in, the, in Claridge's, and we chatted, and we cracked a deal and then we said to Robert said Robert really sorry but that's fine we'll do this deal but we can't afford it so you're gonna to have to lend us 150,000 of the purchase price and you went oh god go on then so that was how we started we bought the old bell with the vendor putting in a vendor loan of 150,000 pounds and that became the sort of um, what we called then the town mouse to Woolly Grange's country mouse. Um, we did turn it into a luxury family hotel, even though it didn't really work as such. Uh, we put a crash in there, but it worked quite well for a while in partnership with Woolly because the Old Bell was really a corporate hotel. And so we were able to help Woolly by dropping overspill corporate business into Woolly during the week, whilst Woolly, that was full at weekends for sort of months and months um out for people, you know, spaced out families who wanted to come away from London to have a bit of time and stick their children in the den. Um, and they just sent their overspill family business to the Old Bell. Um, and that's kind of how Luxury Family Hotels sort of started. 
and then we obviously developed that business by um doing more hotels um uh, in time we 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 adopted the having sort of realized quite how hard it was to raise small amounts of money once you've got a little bit of money you've got a little bit of headway it then becomes increasingly easier of course um so we um we used to we adopted what i call the victor kayam principle we put cards in the guest bedrooms and said if you've enjoyed your stay you might like to become an investor and i built up a database of about a thousand people who ticked the box on that card and gave me their details and you probably wouldn't be allowed to do it today gdpr and all that um yeah so that's that's a great that's a great way of raising cash isn't it? i've got to ask, before you carry on who paid for the champagne i'm thinking if you managed to negotiate a deal where he had to lend you 150 grand did you know did you have to pay for the drinks or did he still pay for those no he still paid for the drinks we paid him a good return on his 150 you're, grand. you're yeah, he quite, still paid for the, quite the negotiator and, and in those early days when you were first raising the sort of the grand here the five grand there the sort of like you said the loose changes you put it what what were you offering them in return were they just doing this as a bit of a favor because you had the gift of the gab or were you offering them sort of equity or, or shareholder or what, what was the uh, what was their motivation? So they had they had a chairs. So so the sorry I should explain the business expansion scheme was basically um, they got tax relief on their investment. So uh, I think the business expansion scheme gave them um, uh, it was certainly forty percent tax relief. I think yeah, similar to the EIS kind of scheme. Now, okay, I guess. EIS came in subsequently, and in fact our next two hotels we did as EIS. So Moonfleet Manor and Foy Hall, those were both EIS issues, and then. Gordon Brown, in his infinite wisdom in 1997, when Labour came to their landslide uh, victory, he was he put paid to hotels being able to be done as EIS. You can still do it for restaurants, of course, but hotels no longer qualify. So, so, so we did BES um, for the Old Bell, and then EIS for Moonfleet and Foy, and then subsequently had to come up with ever more creative. Um, schemes that didn't rely on tax relief but there's no doubt about it the the tax relief was a big incentive for people to come in uh, and, and is still there today for lots of restaurants do eis um that's how yeah. fund themselves. i was chatting to, to chris gumble from um brew house and kitchen actually a little while ago and, and the eis was how they've built their sort of group i don't know what he's got now 20-ish maybe yeah. brew house and kitchens and, and and yeah done in a similar way so you then start this trajectory and you end up running two sort of Groups, I guess, uh, Alias and uh, and the luxury family hotel, sort of side by side. What what was your secret? What were you doing that enabled this sort of reasonably rapid expansion? Was was there kind of a was there a need for change within the hotel market? And did it go back to sort of that change that you'd seen with 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 Robin at the Chute and Glen? I kind of wonder. Yeah, was it sort of just you know right timing? And then what was the strategy to enable that growth? So luxury family hotels was what I wanted to do. Uh, as I said, at that resonated with me at the time with a six-month-old child and the development of luxury family hotels was always sort of dearest to my heart we we you know and and that was taking the concept that Nigel had kind of proved at Woolley and rolling it out um so the old bell was a sort of a stepping stone we, we disposed of the old bell to get going with alias so Woolley Grange, Moonfleet Manor, Foy Hall and Ickworth were the four luxury family hotels that we developed and they're still doing today what we started doing with them all those years ago. Um, when we sold those to Von Essen, Von Essen added in a few others that I don't think really worked as luxury family hotels. And um, I'm not quite sure whether that brand is still um, intending to be developed along the lines that we started. But equally, we felt that that brand had a, was a niche and had a very 
um, we could we couldn't or what or rather not about what we could and couldn't do there wasn't the place in the marketplace for a hundred luxury family hotels we'd done four and there might have been the opportunity for a couple more but it wasn't a uh, you know it was a it was a quite an expensive product if you think about it because you were providing you know free in inverted commas creches with the hotels they made it made no sense to stay there if you didn't have a family and had a reasonable amount of disposable income because these were it was an expensive you know they were you know expensive um, hotels to stay in um so it, it, you know because because the the creches were basically costs of the creche were covered by what people paid for the rooms so um and, and that's how the model worked and so um it was it was very much a niche model um and um you know, I still think that's proven today. I mean, there's a few others that have that kind of followed in our footsteps. I think Richard Ball at Colcott would probably argue that he stole the idea from Nigel in the first place. In fact, he's already told me that that's what he did, and and, and you know, they 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 copied it. And there's been a few others done it since. But again, there aren't hundreds and hundreds of hotels, country house hotels out there that have got that. Um, proposition where you bring your family and the kids get looked after in the den, um, and in fact. I think that proposition has needs to evolve now anyway, because that that idea of um, well-off London families having a nanny coming away, sticking the kids in the den whilst the adults have a good time, and then maybe you know having a little bit of swim time with the kids is is, is I think families have moved on from that as well. Um, that 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 you know there's there's um, uh, so I think that you know that, that, that if I was running luxury family hotels today, I would be looking very hard as to you know. <coughs> Excuse me. How to uh, how to take that business on? But but as I say, I still think it it is very much a niche market. Um, and so, having done a few of the luxury family hotels and felt actually we quite enjoying, and I still had this appetite of investors that um, kept filling in these cards and telling me they wanted to give me money. So there was a sort of a uh, by this stage a fairly strong source of capital in some shape or form, um, which we needed to match with a product that we felt felt we could um do as a you know uh, in tandem with the luxury family hotels um product so that's where alias came um robin had already done hotel divan um in fact he's he he started winchester uh the very same day that we started the old bell robin and robin's and my careers have sort of interwoven quite a bit over the years um and uh so we'd looked at what hotel that hotel divan were doing um obviously malmaison had already been around since the mid 90s and we thought yeah there's lots this is a big market this sort of this opportunity sort of town and city center um funky hotels aiming at the sort of business traveler mid-market sort of leisure guests um there's a massive opportunity um and that's what alias tried to be um we we developed four alias hotels um over um about five years um and um uh, would like to have done more we actually bought a building in liverpool that was what caused brought our alias plans to a grinding halt because we bought that building on the expectation we would get a grant to develop it. It was a lovely old warehouse um, in in the centre of Liverpool and um, the Northwest Development Agency, who were the grant awarding bodies, assured us that we could get, I think it was two million, it was a lot of money um, to develop this hotel. And then just as apparently they were about to sign our grant 
contract award. Um, Liverpool was granted the European City of Culture for 2008, and they suddenly thought, oh, we need to spend all of our money developing public realms, you know, sorting out the streets and everything else to make Liverpool look pretty. So we lost our grant, which meant we had a building that we couldn't do anything with, and that was basically the end of Alias. We had to sell it off the back of that. Okay, interesting. Just as a matter of interest, I'll come back to that in a second. But that that um, luxury family hotels. What what's the sort of sweet point rooms wise? Were they all of a, a similar level? How many rooms did you need to sort of to, to pay for the crash and the rest of the facilities? Uh, Thirty to fifty. Right. Okay. Uh, Asking for a friend as a person with a twelve bed hotel, which is always a little bit of a struggle to uh, to get to work. I'm always interested into like, yeah, what's the perfect kind of room size? How many have you got at Congham now? So we got twenty six at Congham, and I don't think that's quite enough. We've got plans yeah. to, to to grow that to between thirty and forty. Um, I think as a single unit um, leisure hotel in the provinces, provided you're in a you know reasonably um, good sort of destination leisure destination. Um, uh, much less than 30 is, is, is hard work. (laughs) It's okay. Um, but much more than 50, uh, and you turn it into a completely different product. It loses the, it loses the individual quaint, uh, personal, uh, touch and feel. Uh, Yeah. Comes more. Okay. Well, always learning. I think Robin backs that up. He, he was sort of thirty to thirty-five. I think so. Yeah, it's taken me a while to learn that I need to double the size of my hotel, which is tricky. Anyway, it's it, it's on the market, but that's a whole other story. So the, I, I read that originally the motivation was to to sell Alias, uh, keep luxury family hotel, but then you end up selling both fairly quickly. What what was the reason? Did did Von Essen just come along and offer you too good a deal, or had you actually considered selling the, the family hotel group before that? Uh, the answer to that question is the former. Yes, Von Essen came along and offered us too good a deal. Um, uh, I'm very glad they did with hindsight because what we were actually doing um, before they came along was embarking on a management buyout where we were going to, as the, um, uh, we we're going to buy out our, our um, uh, investors who, who by now had been on board, some of them since 1993, since the old Bell days. Um, we tried to sort of make a market for the shares by going on to some of these bourses, I think it was called Offex or something, I can't remember, um, to, to try and create a little bit of a market, but they don't really work. Um, we were too small to go on to AIM or anything like that. So we needed to find an exit. And we decided that the way we were going to do that was sell Alias and um, can carry out a, a management buyout of the shareholders in luxury family hotels effectively by doing a highly leveraged sale and leaseback. Um, this was 2005, 2006. At that point, we thought that the world was going to carry on um, on this upward trajectory that was accelerating forevermore. No one foresaw the uh, 2007 crash. And I guarantee if we had succeeded in going ahead with that highly leveraged management buyout um i would not be in the hotel business certainly as my own hotelier as my as my as as my doing my own business to this day because i think i'd have lost everything Um, so it was it was a again a fortunate timing however um and as i'm sure most you will know and most people know they've heard the history of von essen which was a crazy sort of time uh where this um chap um andrew davis was um basically hoovering up every single quality country house hotel that he could um uh he he was he was getting ever more um 
hungry to, to to buy more and more hotels. And he he basically just knocked on our door. He'd heard that we were doing the management buyout, so he'd heard that that you know these as he saw them, properties um, were for sale. And it was Ickworth that he particularly liked. He'd already got Clifton. Um, he he liked the sort of the, the association with the grand old National Trust and in the case of Ickworth, the Harvey family and everything else. And he just wouldn't go away. The difficult with him was that um, he's a very difficult man to deal with. And also um, he'd never tried to buy a group before. He'd only ever bought privately owned hotels where he'd essentially gone along to Mr. and Mrs. Smith and said, I want to buy your hotel. And Mr. and Mrs. Smith said, well, it's not for sale. And he'd said, well, it's worth 100. I'll give you 120. Um, and they'll say, oh, OK, well, if you're going to give us 120, that means we got it. That means we don't have to work for the next five, 10 years to get it to worth 120. Fine. And then he'd say, oh, but the trick is I'm only going to give you 100 today. You've got to leave 20 in and I'll give you 20 back in a few years time. And that's how he built up Von Essen. That was the model that he used was was um, persuading people to leave money on the table um, because he basically got the bank debt and used the vendors to supply his equity. Uh, but of course, he couldn't do that with a uh, a group because I had lots of individual shareholders who were, they weren't interested in selling their shares, but being paid in five years time. It was like, you want to buy my shares, give me the money. So um, we had to find a way of selling, uh, which allowed them to exit and also allowed him to um, uh, uh, uh fund it in the way that he was funding his business. So um, Muggins here uh, was the one who left his his money on the table, um, which uh, I don't regret doing now, but if I'd known what Mr. Davis was like, I probably wouldn't have done it at the time. Uh, but I'm pleased to say I did get my money out before Von Essen went bust. Um, uh, but yeah, so. you were you were lucky on the timings there. And I, I know you you said at the time that it was one of the most stressful periods you'd had, sort of the, the time of that deal. What was it particularly? Was it was it literally just the the, the sort of legalities of it, or, or running the businesses whilst knowing you were selling it? What what was causing such a, a change? I think I read that you actually questioned your sort of life in hospitality at that particular period. Yeah, the stress was because. Um, having um, um, done all my businesses, I mean, by this stage, I think I had 480 shareholders. Um, they're all private individuals. And I took personal responsibility. I felt a personal sense of responsibility for looking after their investment. Um, you know, many of them I still, you know, talk to to this day. Um, and uh, but at this particular juncture, um, there were out of 480, you're always going to have one or two who are starting to question what's going on and what are the motives. And a couple of them uh, suspected that uh, because we'd made it known that we were doing the management buyout, that we were uh, obstructing the Von Essen deal in order to keep the business for ourselves, um, you know, nothing could be further from the truth. I was desperate for Von Essen to just either cough up, buy the thing or bugger off. Um, but that wasn't, that wasn't in my gift to make that happen. That was in Mr. Davis's gift. And, uh, and he, you know, and he was struggling to, as I say, to, 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 uh, do this transaction because he didn't have pots of money at his disposal. He was, you know, wanting to do a creative deal. 
and and so it, and it ran on for too long. So it was probably about eighteen months between when they first approached us and when we finally sold. Uh, Ickwith was the last one because the hotels were in two separate companies. Um, we had three in one company and one in another, and and all during that period of time, I felt that. You know, my shareholders who'd been with it for a long time um, were increasingly thinking I was trying to screw them, and I didn't like that feeling. Mm. Yeah, nasty. I don't. You can't work in hospitality. I don't think and just be a completely ruthless. Uh, you know, sod. Can you? I think. Uh, yeah, you, you you like people, particularly if you've done the initial deal. So, well, congratulations on on selling out and getting your money. I know there was a bit of a time period, like you say, to, to get it, but well done for doing it. Um, Instead of running for the hills, randomly you ended up in in Portugal. <laughs> Why? Okay, so it, it, there is a there is a reason to most of my madness. Uh, <laughs> the, the, I come back to luxury family hotels, and 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 I mean, I loved every single day of building up that business and developing it. Um, you know, in partnership with Nigel, um, starting from the idea that he created at Woolley and, and, and developing that through to as far as we took it in the UK. And having decided that this market was limited in the UK, we simultaneously thought, but there's a fantastic opportunity for what I would loosely describe as luxury family holidays. So luxury family hotels, they, they, those hotels were short break businesses people would come to them for two or three days mainly over a weekend but you know people with preschool age children they'd come midweek because it would be a slightly better deal monday to thursday than friday to sunday um but those same people were going to their villa in marbella for two weeks um um, or you know three three or four times a year and we thought we can take this model abroad and develop uh, take it to the next stage and develop a resort that appeals squarely to this same audience. Uh, and that's really where Martignal came into being. It, it, the, the site, it's the most wonderful site. It's the most amazing piece of uh, Europe. You are right at the end of the Western Algarve. Literally, there's a um, <laughs> uh, next stop is America. It's the most southwesterly point of Europe. Um, and this site was right on a beach. Um, it had got planning consent, her- historic planning consent. It was in a national park where you'd never get consent today, but it got an, an, an age-old historic planning consent for a whole load of villas and a, and a, and a little hotel. And um, the uh, and we thought we can we can turn this into something amazing. Um, and we um, uh, brought um, Conran. Um, on board to master planet to uh, try and come up with a scheme that that developed a um, took took the existing planning and basically amalgamated a whole load of villa plots into one big plot uh, which together with the hotel allowed us to um, develop what became a um, a 132 house two and three bedroom contemporary resorts with four restaurants, bars, shops, um, crash, obviously, um, beach club, um, swimming pools. Um, that is what is the resort Martignal today. They are former partners in that have now developed that to have three or four Martignals um, dotted around uh, Portugal. Um, but the one that we did in Sagres was the first and, 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 and kind of, for me, that was, 
because Nigel had started Luxury Family and I got on board with him on day two, um, I found the development of Martinel um, so rewarding because, you know, I was there on day one, you know, Nigel and I took our combined um, expertise um, uh both in terms of um, product and in terms of how we were going to finance it and how we were going to develop it um, uh, from 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 a bare piece of land up to a finished product. I'm very proud of it. Yeah, I bet that was really exciting. How long did it take from, from concept to opening to the public? Um, so at 2004 was when we first went there, 2005, I think, when we first started working with Conran. And it opens its doors in 2010. Uh, oh, wow. April 2010. Yeah. yeah. And uh, well received? Amazing. I mean, it's still winning accolades to this day as, um, uh, you know, Europe's best, best family friendly resort and such like. Yeah. I had a look on the website yesterday, actually, and thought, yeah, it looks lovely. I must, must go over. Are you still involved? Or? Uh, no. Um, uh, it says we, we did it the, 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 it was a Swiss couple that owned the land, so they weren't willing to sell to us. In fact, they they wanted us just to run the hotel. We said, we're not running a hotel for you, but if you want to do it in partnership with us, we'll develop this amazing resort. Um, so we partnered with them, develop it and open it, and they're now running it. Okay, excellent. Yeah, exciting time. Uh, did you move over there for that period? or No, I, I moved to Bishop Stortford uh, at about that time because I spent Similar. an awful lot of time on EasyJet from Stansted to Faro. I, I, I became a, a very regular customer of EasyJet. Um, uh, I actually, I, I did it twice where I went from home and to back home in a day to go to a meeting. I could just do it a day. I caught the six o'clock flight uh, out from Stansted and I could get to the to to, to Martignal and have a three-hour meeting and still catch the last flight home. Uh, but that, wow. that was a bit... Most, most months I would go out for about a week or 10 days each month. Yeah. I was going to say, I think given the opportunity, particularly once uh, once you had some rooms to stay in over there, I think staying overnight must have been a better option. So um, sort of con- continuing this uh, this adventure, which I love, it really is a proper hospitality adventure and, and a bit of serendipity and these sort of uh, zigzags, I suppose. Uh, Von Essen ends up going into administration. It doesn't sound to me like that was completely surprising um, by sort of how well leveraged they were. were. Were you surprised? I guess the backdrop was the sort of, you know, global... Uh, financial crash but uh, yeah had you anticipated that yes it was always going to happen because basically it was a plane that couldn't land um it was it, it, so long as property prices continued to rise the plane could keep flying and the the model of sort of overpaying for assets uh, on the basis that that asset's going to continue to uh, grow in value and then continue to gear up to continue to pay pay back what you've already bought was was workable uh, but once the crash happened that plane was always going to crash very quickly um, and it did yeah and did you sort of if you appreciated that in the early days had you ever considered that you might end up buying back some of those hotels um Yes, and you know this coincided with us just having opened Martignal, so it's sort of I was I was beginning to think, what am I going to do next? But I also thought um, because Von Essen had hoovered up so many amazing trophies that those with far deeper pockets than little Nicholas Dickinson uh, would, you know 
come in and hoover up the estate um, and would, um, you know, blow me out of the water in terms of the sp if someone wanted someone, as you can see from the people who bought them, the 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 the, the, the Tuton Glen Brigade, the Livingston Brothers, or the um, uh, the likes of that, if they wanted to buy something and you were competing with them, they could just move much more quickly than you, and you'd end up losing a bit of money, wasting your time. So I, I sort of stood on the sidelines for a while and, and watched what happened uh, after the the estate was sort of marketed and and indeed uh, watched uh, with interest my now former business partner, Nigel, together with um, uh, a, a, a patron capital who he'd, he'd, he'd partnered with, buy back luxury family hotels um and so i i had a bit of a window in what was happening in terms of the buying up the von essen estate and i decided i'd just stay in the wings and then uh, i think it was about six months after the they were launched there was a group of hotels that it was made clear by the administrators had had no interest and one of them was congham and i'd known congham from its very very early days i was lucky enough back in the 1980s to be awarded a scholarship from Oxford Poly to research the country house hotel market. And I, they basically paid me to drive around the whole of the UK uh, interviewing um, hoteliers up and down the country in the mid 80s. And Trevor and Christine Forecast, who owned Congham at that time, were one of the hoteliers that I interviewed um, all those years ago. And they you could have done a podcast if uh, in different times, Nicholas. That would have been an ideal opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> they'd, they'd only just started Congham. And I thought they had a nice little uh, quaint hotel. I hadn't been to it for many years since but I thought it, it had a bit of potential and um, I was curious as to why it, no one had snapped it up and so I just popped up to have a look and realised why and it was because it was the only one in the estate the Von Essen estate that they were in the middle of doing a development at the time the administration happened uh, so they were putting on a spa um, and the obviously the builders to the, of the spa were a creditor in the administration. Um, so they'd exercised their right under that contract to effectively take possession of that bit of the site. And so Congham was being sold as a, an unsaleable asset. You know, you, no one with their right mind would buy something, you know, and try and sort that out. Um, so the administrators eventually realised that that's what they were going to have to do. Uh, so they entered into a new, I think it was about half a million pound contract with the builders to sort of get the spa finished off before they sold it. And I thought, well, actually that, because that's happening and because it's all too difficult for these big boys and all too messy, maybe that will be an opportunity for one for me to, to pick up. Uh, so I did. Amazing. Another, another bit of serendipity. Did, did you and Nigel almost, because I know he bought back a number of the uh, the hotels, did you and him almost work together again? Because by this point, you'd, you'd been working together for a long time. And was it a conscious decision that you wanted to go out on your own? Or? Yeah, it was a con it, it, but that, you know, that, that, as I say, that business partnership um, had, was, you know, incredibly mutually beneficial and you know i enjoyed every minute of it but it had run its course and it was you know it was time um for us to do our own thing um uh, and particularly for me um not necessarily to do something on my own everything i've done in my life i've done in partnership I, i'm slightly unusual um as an entrepreneur i think most entrepreneurs are loners um and have a, a vision or an idea that they want to pursue in almost a messianic like state um and and hope that people will buy into sort of following their idea i've throughout my life 
enjoyed doing things in partnership with others. So whether that be uh, my partnership, successful business partnership, Nigel Chapman, or today, uh, my partnership at Congham with my wife, who started out working for me at the old bell in 1994 as sales manager and we've worked together for 25 years and she's now my business partner at, at Congham as well as our finance director who's an important partner for me in that in, in, in my relationship now but it's also the partnership with the, the partnership is a fundamental tenant uh, in hospitality if you're delivering uh, uh, hospitality that partnership between the staff and the guests is critically important and a lot of people i think get this wrong where they um they uh, think that it's just about giving people a good time and as long as you're giving people a good time you can get as many people as you can because that's going to give you make you busier but you've got to focus on the fact that what the the enjoyment and the, the 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 experience of having a good time to one person might be different to someone else um and you've got to first and foremost be true to what you're all about what you are what your proposition is uh and i see it sometimes at Cogham where a guest will walk through the front door and i think to myself shit you shouldn't be here you're not right for us and that's not an arrogant statement it's not meant to mean that um, they're weird or something. It's just that what they want is not what we do. Um, and, and that's probably, first and foremost, our fault because we haven't communicated our message clearly enough. Um, they're expecting something that we don't typically provide. And, and, and that then, if you get too many of those people, you don't say to them, you know, go home, you shouldn't be here. You obviously take their money and try and give them a good time, but then you hope they won't come back. Um, I like... I liken it to the fact that I want every single person who walks through the front door at Congham to love it or hate it within a few seconds. And I don't care which one of those two things they do. I just don't want them to walk in and think, oh, this is all right. Because that means, you know, they're just looking for a bed for the night. I don't sell beds. I sell experiences. Um, and if you want a bed for the night, stay at a travel lodge. They're very good or Premier Inn or something. They're a very good commodities product. But if you're in the experiences game, um, you want people to engage with that experience as passionately as possible, as, as, as forcibly as possible. That means they need to love it or hate it. Otherwise, what, what is it? They're not, they're not, um, they don't have a connection with it. Um, and it's by being, uh, by recognizing that partnership between the staff and the guests, because that then allows the staff to deliver your, your version of hospitality as if it were their own. Um, so, uh, because they've got guests who are almost universally coming for what we do, um, not coming for something that we don't do, but they might want. Um, and bringing all of that together and bringing the partnership uh, uh, concept together, uh, whether that be between me and my investors or me and my um, business partners or me and my staff or my staff and my guests or my guests and my business that's really what I think makes a uh, makes for a any successful hospitality business you can have you can have all of the um, marketing tricks that can be just just a strap line or they can be genuine you know Congham built its reputation on the back of its herb garden we still live off the back of the fact that we've got a herb garden with 480 variety of herbs. And it's a really, we're stretching the point now because um, the herb garden where it is, is where I'm developing more rooms or hoping to develop more rooms. And I'm sort of thinking, I'm not sure how much longer I can push this sort of herb garden notion. Um, 
it was genuine in the forecast days, but it increasingly became a strap line um, uh, in recent times. The press quite like it and still talk about it a little bit. And I kind of wish they wouldn't. I kind of wish they'd just focus on where Congham is now, but I can't stop them doing it. Um, you have some, I mean, we, we talked about Robin a lot in this interview, you have something like the pig where that's totally genuine with their um, 15 mile or 20 mile radius and, and all the, the, the stuff they get from their produce. And um, uh, But then you also get, some businesses where um, that they're, they're they're you know marketing themselves off the back of something that's slightly more gimmickry, but whether it's genuine or whether it's just a uh, a strap line, underneath all of that has got to be this honest, passionate desire to give people a good time, provided they want a good time in the way that you deliver it. Um, and if you try and be all things to all men in desperately trying to attract anyone who wants to come and visit you and pay you their money, that's when you slip up. Mm. So with all of that journey and all of that knowledge, and it looks like you've really kind of you know gone, gone full circle and, and from what I've read, you seem very happy at, at Congham, sort of you know back, back to where it all started. What have you created? You know, I suppose who's your perfect target market and what is that experience that you've created with all of that sort of background knowledge that you have that's a really good question and a really difficult one to answer um i don't i don't know i think if i asked 10 people who visited congham why they like it they'd probably give you 10 different answers um i, I think um i think authenticity being uh, caring, I think genuinely um, caring for people, genuinely wanting people to get some enjoyment out of what you're offering is probably what comes across um, more than anything else. Um, I mean, we... I I liken I liken myself a little bit to a uh, a drug addict. You know, I'm just not I'm not hooked on heroin. I'm hooked on giving people a good time. Um, but also, you know, those people have got to want to have a good time, and they've got to have a want to have a good time in the way I want to give it to them. Uh, so, as I said, if someone wants something that I don't want to give. I'll reluctantly give it to them and Congham will reluctantly deliver that. Not, not begrudgingly because they've paid us some money, but we want to make it. But then also make in a, in a subtle way that makes them realize that actually this wasn't for them and it's been all right, but they're not going to come back. So you, you develop increasingly develop a core of people who just become like an, it sounds a bit hackneyed, but almost like an extension of, of one big happy family. Um, you know, we've, we've just last week um, made a decision as to how we're going to deliver our Christmas and New Year programs. Um, Christmas, New Year is probably the time where we have the most amount of fun. It's, it's a fantastic time. We do a four night Christmas package. We then do a three night package in between Christmas and New Year and a three night New Year package. We get lots of people who come back year after year for those one or one or other of those three packages. I've been doing it ever since the luxury family hotels days. And it really is a most amazing experience, but you tell me what that package should be today in COVID times, you know, what's going to happen on New Year's Eve. Are we going to allow to dance? Are we going to be in bed by 10? Well, okay. This is the point. So, but, 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 
at the time that Boris tells us uh, what we can do on New Year's Eve, it'll probably be the day before New Year's Eve. Well, that hasn't that is not enough time for me to persuade twenty six people, couples, to come and stay at Congham for three nights and and have great fun. So we've got to decide that today because we're we're already provisionally full for all three packages, and um, guests are just constantly asking, "Are these going ahead? What's happening?" And I decided a, a week ago. New Year was a difficult one. Christmas, we think we can pretty much do as we normally do. And the, the, the three nights in between we call a recharger is is, 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 is is fairly standard. But New Year is difficult. You know, it's a three night package, but it all it all comes together in what are we going to do on um, New Year's Eve? And so we wrote to all the guests and said to them, look, we we, we need you to decide now whether you're going to stay or not, because if you're not, we need to find someone else who who is. But we understand that, you know, as things stand, we're all going to be in bed at 10 o'clock. So here's the deal. We're going to have the um, uh, the band that comes and normally plays. They're going to be there. They're going to play some little light music during dinner to sort of entertain you. Uh, the fireworks we normally do at, at midnight, we're not cancelling those. We're going to have still have them booked. And if the rules, the current rules and the 10 p.m. curfew still in place. Um, then um, we're going to give you all a glass of champagne at five to ten. We're going to set the fireworks off at ten o'clock, and then we're going to go to bed. Uh, and we're going to and we're going to make it work. And we're going to have a great time. And that's going to be our new year. And and are you still up for that? And not one of them has cancelled. Yeah, I was going to say, and that is why I love hospitality. It's just full of. You know, creative people who, and, and, and it's been the frustration, I suppose, you know, we could dip into to COVID briefly, but, the, you know, the frustration of, of seeing, you know, hospitality being blamed for transmission rates when it's when it's blatantly not true is it, you know, it's full of lovely, beautiful, intelligent people who in their core, in their DNA is this, this sort of desire to look after people and to keep them safe and to show them a good time. You know, the last thing that we want to do is, is focus on the cash and exploit people's well-being um but but we are such a creative sector that there's been so many pivots and so many spins and whatever you know the government has thrown at us so far you know so many people have stood up and and tried to find a way through it but it's been quite heartbreaking to to understand i suppose how many businesses despite that resilience and despite that intelligence and that ability to to be entrepreneurial you know aren't going to come through what's your thoughts on on sort of the relationship at the moment i suppose between hospitality covid and the government uh I think, um, uh, as I know a number of your previous interviewees have said, that Kate Nichols is doing the most amazing job. Uh, we have the best person acting as our voice, and she ha- clearly has the ear of government. Uh, and so, I don't think I don't think we're doing any more as an industry than 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 we could to uh, have our voice heard. I think we are being used um, as a bit of a scapegoat. Um, uh, you're talking to someone in me who's a bit of a lockdown denier. Uh, I, I I understand why we went into it in, on the 23rd of March. Um, and I think um, if the truth be known, it should have lasted a very short period of time and then they should have focused on um, shielding the vulnerable um, and basically getting the rest of the country back into um uh, back to work you don't you don't quarantine the healthy you quarantine the sick and the vulnerable um and 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 we are being used as a scapegoat um as to 
as to tokenism that uh, the government uh, needs to show to show what it's doing to continue to fight the virus. Um, uh, and, and, and I'm afraid that's going to continue for a while. Um, I feel incredibly lucky at Congham uh, that A, we're in a part of the country that's got very low infections. So we're in tier one. I'm so glad I'm not in Manchester or even London. Uh, uh, I'm so glad that we're not, um, uh, you know, a wedding venue or trying to run this, a nightclub business or so many, so many different sectors of the hospitality industry are just um, dying uh, uh, at the moment. You know, there's no tourism, there's no groups, there's no weddings, there's no. Sure, there's going to be a boom of weddings in 2021 and 2022 as we get sort of two or three years worth of weddings all happening in one. Um, and so those that are in that market who survive that long will have a bumpy year. But meanwhile, they're all you know, bleeding terribly. I, I feel incredibly blessed. We reopened on the 20th of July and I haven't had an empty bedroom since we reopened. Um, but that's, you know, more to do with the fact that the the opportunities of pl- places for people to go and visit and have a break are fewer and fewer and far between when you take into fact, you know, if you go to France, you've got to come back and quarantine for two weeks. So you've got to have a three-week holiday to just take one week off. Um, and swathes of the country are now increasingly you know, no-go areas from a COVID perspective. So uh, it's, it's I, I, I don't take any pleasure in the fact that we are literally run ragged and packed to the gunnels. Um, I'm grateful for it and feel hugely for those businesses that are massively struggling and are likely to struggle for some time to come. Uh, I don't think the virus, I don't think the vaccine, um, the hope of a vaccine and people who are holding out for a vaccine, they're going to hold themselves up until we get a vaccine, is um, likely to make much of a difference. I mean, you know, we um, there's loads of these coronaviruses out there that for which there is no potential vaccine. We've just got to learn to live with this virus. And I subscribe to the bit of the scientific community that says that we've already um, moved from rather than having about 93% of the population susceptible to this virus to probably less than 30% susceptible. And on that basis, we've already probably built up a degree of herd immunity that will allow most of us to lead normal lives. But unfortunately, politicians can't admit when they've got something wrong and the scientists that are um, advising government are doubling down at the moment on their their position that that is um, that's not science that's just crank theories um, uh, I, the great Barrington declaration which um, is is being talked about but now not able to be um, uh, uh, found on Google because it's been shadow banned um, has got an awful lot of eminent scientists that subscribe to it but we've got a polarised school of thought now between those that think uh, those thoughts and those that subscribe to the sage view that um, this is still a very dangerous virus that only 7% of the country's had and if we let it go rip then we're going to have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of deaths. Mm. It's interesting and, and no matter what you think on you know the, the virus itself and vaccines and all that kind of stuff how how ridiculous does it feel in your hotel where presumably your guests are only going upstairs to have a sleep and then they're coming back downstairs for breakfast it, it must seem completely insane to have to stop serving them at, at 10 o'clock in the evening it's it's madness and it, and it puts so much pressure on us because um as i said we, we we've had to curtail the number of non-residents we do um but our 
52 odd residents, 26 rooms every night. They don't want to eat dinner at five o'clock. Um, so, you know, we can persuade one or two of them to have dinner about six or 6.15 if we're lucky. We generally have to get through an entire service that starts around about seven o'clock. And if we haven't taken last orders by half eight at the latest, we're telling them, sorry, you're going to have to have your dessert in, in your room. So we're, we're cramming what would normally be a leisurely service, well, leisurely, but would normally be a service that would sort of start to get going you know, shortly before seven and run on till shortly after nine into doing this, trying to get the same amount of people through between seven and eight or shortly afterwards. Uh, it puts massive pressure on the staff. Um, I don't, I'm hoping that, that the guests don't feel it, um, but, it, you know, it's just another unnecessary pressure. And then, of course, you say to the few people who we have let in from it outside that they've got to go home now at 10 o'clock not a moment afterwards because we're worried that the police might be knocking on our door and finding us £10,000 or something. Um, and the residents, but it's okay, as long as you've ordered another, you know, whiskey or a, another bottle of wine at five to 10, you can go and sit in the sitting room and enjoy that wine for as long as you like. Um, it's, 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 it's a nonsense. It is, I think that's the word, isn't it? Unnecessary and a nonsense. It just feels like, and I think this is the problem with, with the sort of people, uh, you know, becoming uh, bored, I suppose, and less compliant is that it's fine when it makes sense. And we absolutely understood the initial lockdown. But when they do stuff like that, you're just like, you know, it, it just feels completely nonsensical and, and ridiculous. And, and we could spend another hour of that, but I'm very conscious of time, not just yours and ours and mine, but for people listening. So um, can I just talk about i suppose your future plans you you know it feels like the trajectory you've been on before always i guess has been about about growth and developing a a, a group it, it looks like you've you've you know you've got a lot that you can do at congham you were planning permission a couple of years ago to to you know add another number of new rooms you talked then about adding some space sort of where the herb garden used to be do you think you've got enough to do at congham to keep you sort of uh, focused and entertained or do you think there's an inevitability that you will grow again as you have done sort of historically uh, no the former i've gone back to my roots they call me basil um they i think they mean it in a nice way um uh but i i i, I do behave in a slightly maverick way sometimes and 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 the analogy with basil faulty isn't always wrong um although i uh, uh, try not to be uh, rude to anyone but i i just i love doing i love going back to being able to be if you like at the coal face um uh dipping in to just giving people a great time at a single hotel as soon as you've got more than one business that bit of hospitality by definition has to be diluted somewhat because you're spending time on you know more more mundane activities or you know running around trying to sort things out you know trying to juggle a um a bigger a bigger animal um so uh, congham is definitely my last hotel um i don't have any aspirations to do more i've had lots of people who've brought all sorts of exciting distressed assets to my attention over the last few months um and uh, i've i've looked at them with, with interest and thought i don't don't have the appetite to make these work i do have st- still have the appetite to 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 grow congham a bit more we come back to the beginning i think at 26 rooms it's okay um but could be it, it, you know it's okay it's doing all right it's doing well at the moment but i without blowing my own trumpet like think that's because i'm 
quite good at what I do. Um, I'd like to get it so that someone else, so it's kind of sustainable for the long term, that it doesn't go bust again, um, like it did when it was uh, Von Essen. Um, and I think it does need to be a little bit bigger to do that. Um, uh, the difficulty with developing an existing business that's already trading well is that it's not only the cost of the development, but the impact on the trade when you do the development. Um, so actually we spent, um, we d- jumped in at the start of lockdown to do the refurbishment that we planned of the existing spa building, which was always going to be the most disruptive works. Um, whilst we were shut, you know, don't look a gift horse in the mouth. If the government forces you to shut, that's the prime time to do works that would normally disrupt your trade massively. You haven't got any trade, so let's do the disruptive works. Um, so that's quite exciting and trying to find a builder who could do that. Um, who was able to get supplies. We found someone who was doing work on a hospital site. So they were still getting access to, um, you know, I heard all sorts of stories like bags of multi-finished plaster that normally cost eight pounds a bag were being sold for 80 pounds a bag uh, because there was just no one could get them uh, and things like that, you know. So that was the worry. But we, we managed to find someone who could get the materials and we did that bit of work to the spa, uh, which I'm pleased we did. And, and yeah, I'm... I'm uh, just kind of waiting for what's the right time to sort of start on a few more of these rooms, but hoping that we'll be able to do that either over this winter or early part of next year. Um, and and uh, that will, I, I feel, get Congham to be in a sustainable state for the long term, whoever might be running it, unless they're a complete idiot. <laughs> Amazing. Well, look, I, I think it's brilliant. I, I love the, you know, just the crazy adventure. You you are a, you know, definite human of hospitality with, with multi uh, decades. Uh, but I just love the fact that you've done so many different things and, and achieved so much and seen so much. And, and it kind of feels fitting now that you've got yeah one venue where you can focus on uh, every day and just, you know, create something exceptional. So congratulations on your journey. And uh, I will definitely come to Congham next time I'm in the area. Um, where should people go, Nicholas, if they want to follow your adventures further? So I'm afraid I'm a bit of a um, social media dinosaur. I don't really do it, but Congham is uh, uh, on all the various platforms. It's uh, on Facebook at Congham Hall Hotel and Spa and Twitter and Instagram at Congham underscore Hall. Um, And you'd be very welcome, Mark, anytime at Congham. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Amazing. Thank you so much. Okay, well, I'll pop some some links up on our website as well, humansofhospitality.co.uk. But for now, uh, yes, it's not raining yet. Uh, it has yeah it's brightening there up there you go perfect it'd be a good all right yeah it'll be good i'm gonna go and walk the dog thank you for sparing the time nicholas i really appreciate it and uh, best of luck for the future it's been a pleasure mark thank you Well, if you got to this point in the podcast, you have done very well indeed. That was quite the conversation following Nicholas's extensive journey and career pivots. I hope you got something useful from it and very much enjoyed the conversation. Now, I've popped the links to Nicholas's business up on the podcast website, humansofhospitality.co.uk. And don't forget, whilst you're there, you can sign up to the weekly newsletter to save you a bit of time looking for links. And you'll get an email each Monday morning explaining who this week's guest is with any useful links directly in your inbox i don't use the mailing list for anything else it's just you and me once a week and also if you can support the podcast financially that would be very helpful it takes a good chunk of time producing a new episode every single week plus kit and hosting fees and travel and all the work i should actually be doing 
in my day job. So if you can become a monthly supporter via Patreon or make a one-off donation via PayPal, all the links are on the website and you'll make me very happy. Next week, by the way, we are off to Mexico to chat to Rocco. He turned out to be a super energetic and incredibly passionate hospitality human who has had a global career and now runs a health resort in the Mexican jungle. He really made me smile and I think he will you too. So please join in and best of luck this week. Cheers.